Lance already introduced me, but I'll introduce myself again. My name is Aaron Cotton, and I'm the Family Discipleship uh, Pastor here um, at The Grove. It really is a pleasure and honor to, to join uh, in the series of Genesis as we've uh, been talking about the beginning um, and how God uh, created uh, something out of, out of nothing. And so I don't really have a, time, a lot of time to review a lot, but I'll review this way, that, that God decides what is good, uh, and then man in Genesis 3 decided that he's going to decide what is good, uh, which is known as the fall, which was just a big invitation for us to fall on Jesus. Amen? I mean, so, so my opening question for us to think about is, is even in this passage, and even from last week as, uh, as we encountered murder, uh, and just, just the chaos and confusion that broke in as a result of the fall. Can you imagine, church, can you imagine a world without hope? For just, just a moment, can you, can you imagine the darkness? Can you imagine the amount of anger? Can you imagine the amount of violence? Can you imagine the amount of, of hostility? Can you imagine how much wandering there would be? But God, in His grace, has intervened. He's intervened with hope. All the way from Genesis chapter 3, He comes into the picture. He could have left us to ourselves, but He intervenes with the promise that one was going to come to, to, to crush the serpent's head, but He also would be bruised. And not only did He make a promise, He made provision, and He clothed Adam and Eve. He clothed them in, and wrapped them in, in garments. That, that foreshadowing and pointing to the fact that Jesus himself would be wrapped in flesh to wrap us with his righteousness. No, church, we have hope. We, we, have, we have hope and we come in with this hope. And so if you have been feeling hopeless, that question of can you imagine a world without hope, you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm in it. I'm in it right now in my parenting. I'm in it right now in my, in my job. I'm right now in it with my career. I'm right now in it in the midst of loss Good news of great joy that we celebrate and Christmas is still relevant and available today that hope is here and hope has come. Even in this long passage of Genesis 5 and 6 that we see with that whole list of names, we see hope coming in. So my title this morning of our sermon is Available Hope Beyond This World. Available Hope Beyond This World. Because God, main idea, is preserving a people and he remains true to his promise. That's the point of Genesis 5 and 6. That God is preserving a people. He is selecting a people and continues to be, continues to be faithful. And so we're going to do a little, a little bit different than what I'm normally accustomed to. Uh, and I'm just going to lean into the risk a little bit. Okay, y'all going to lean in with me? We're going to have fun this morning. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 6, starting uh, there first. And then we'll backtrack again into Genesis chapter 5. The word of the Lord says this in Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. That's a good word, multiply. Okay, tracking with you, Moses. When he began to multiply on the face of the land, verse 2, the sons of God. You got man, you got daughters, and you got these sons of God that are coming into the picture. I'm doing this intentionally. When the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, okay, all right, here we go. And they took as their wives any as they chose. That doesn't sound too good. Oh, because it's not. Verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 
years. So God comes in with judgment. Something happened here, y'all, that, that, that was leading up to the flood uh, that many people have argued about and still argue about today. That's still debate as to who these people are. But notice in the text in verse 2, it says, When the sons of God saw, which ought to sound familiar. It's a familiar phrase from Genesis chapter 3. When Eve saw. Anytime when the, when the text says that when, when, when people go out and see, it's, it's a matter of them taking matters into their own hands and deciding what is good. It's the same phrase of David and Bathsheba when David was on the rooftops. Where, when kings were off to go in battle and David was not in the place where he's supposed to be, it was David, he said, who looked and he saw. He took for his own. And we know the story of adultery. So from the beginning, it was Genesis 1 and 2. It was when God saw it was good. When God saw that it was good created man and God saw that it was very very good let's continue on verse 4 the Nephilim the who excuse me bless you yes the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward it just keeps getting more fun y'all I hope y'all join in me join in with me on the fun the Nephilim were on there on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them these were the mighty men who were of old the men of renown so listen, y'all, we got, we got to do some work in the text. I wanted to be faithful to the text. And we got to ask these questions. And the qu first question is this, is who are the Nephilim? Who are these guys? Number two is who are the sons of God? And maybe the temptation for you this morning is like, man, why are we talking about this? Like, y'all, th these are the events that led up to God flooding the world. Okay, so it's a, it's, it's a big deal. So we're going to ask the questions. We're going to wrestle with the text together. First question is, who are the Nephilim? Second question is, who are the sons of God? We could talk way more about that, but we don't have time for it. But hear this, y'all. The main point of Genesis 6 is this. No matter kind of where we land on these certain questions, the point is this. The enemy is at, is at work attempting to derail God's promise. Genesis 3.15 happened, and, and, and the enemy is coming in, and he wants to contaminate the lineage of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. He wants to come in and he wants to jack things up. And it, while at the same time the enemy's at work, and while at the same time humanity wants to go beyond their limits and be God. you got the enemy that's at work wanting to pollute, pollute and contaminate the lineage. And at the same time, man wants to be beyond their limits and be God. But there's hope in God's image, y'all. Hope in God's image. First question, who are these Nephilim? I like to say they're the big people. They're not like people that we see today, like we're, the Super Bowls happen here in a couple weeks, uh, and there's a, there's a position called the offensive line. Uh, I, I, I play a little bit of football, and I had a Nephilim that I uh, played football with. He was just a big dude, right? So Nephilim, according to what the Septuagint would translate from, uh, it would be the Greek text of the Old Testament, they would uh, lean towards that the Nephilim were giants in the land. All right, I know we're getting there. We're, like, we're right up in it. These were giants in the land. Also in Numbers uh, chapter 13, when the spies were sent out to go see uh, the promised land. Do you remember what they said? They said, hey, the Nephilim are in the land, and we're like grasshoppers. Like grasshoppers. Like this is how big they are. But how are these Nephilim in Numbers 13 are not the same Nephilim of Genesis 6, because Genesis 6, these guys are going to be wiped out in flood. But the point being, the point I'm making that connection in Numbers 13 is to say that, that there's a connection between the Nephilim being the big people, okay? These are, these are giants that are in the land. Second question is this, is who are the sons of God? Who are these sons of God? Great question. There's two views that people would hold. The first view would be this, is that, is that these, these 
uh, the sons of God are human or they come from the lineage of Seth. If you look at Genesis chapter 5, there's a whole list of names of, of, of the lineage of Seth. And some would say that these sons of God are, are, are is the lineage of Seth that is marrying the descendants of Cain. And there's intermarrying that's going on and, it's, and again, pollute, polluting the line. And so uh, I, I, and people would also say that God's people were called God's sons. So people who hold to this view say, well, yeah, we're, we're, we're God's sons, according to Deuteronomy chapter 14. However, the exact phrase sons of God is never used like this in a way that presents them as human. Okay, are you all with me? So we got this, this, this view of them being humans. Are they the lineage of Seth? And the strongest piece of evidence for this view would be in Genesis 6, 5, where God says the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And he curses the man, animals, and the creeping things, and he does not mention angels. So this view of, 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 of these sons of God being uh, of the lineage of Seth, of being, of being human, uh, I, mean, I, I think has evidence in verse 5, when God curses. Okay? Now listen, y'all, I've been, I've been in books, I've been wrestling with this myself. There's, like, there's scholars and there's people way smarter than me that are still trying to figure this out and wrestle with this tension. And so I'm, we're joining in that, that wrestle, joining in with that tension. Are they humans or are they, are they angels? What? Why are you, where are you getting angels? Which is actually the predominant view held for majority of church history and even, even in Israel's history. That it's the most widely held position. How the phrase, y'all, the phrase sons of God is clearly used in other pieces of scripture as angels. So in this position is not the godly descendants of Seth, but it's actually demons attempting to contaminate, again, the, le- the lineage of the seed of, of the woman. So let's look at the text. Let's, let's look at some passages of who are these sons of God. Job 1, verse 6 would say, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And so we know the story of Job. We know the story when, 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 when the enemy comes to approach God and says, have you considered, uh, or sorry, the Lord says, have you considered my servant Job? And the, 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 according to the passage, it's Satan and the sons of God rolling up these angels. Job 38 verse 1 says, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. Okay, Lord, all right, just reaction like a man. Okay, I will question you, Job, and you make it known to me. When, you were, uh, when I laid the foundation of, of the earth, where were you, Job? In verse 7, here it is, y'all. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God, they shouted for joy. So if we look particularly at this phrase, this phrase of sons of God. It has consistently been used, according to Job, and even maybe some other passages, as, as, as angels. But this has its difficulties. I mean, you think about, like, demons coming in and, uh, and, and contaminate the lineage. Like how, like, how does that even take place? And the answer is, I don't know. <laughs> but we do see in the New Testament, we do see demons at work. We do see uh, demons come in and, and possess people. And Jesus uh, frees these people. We see them come in and, and take control, and, and, and Jesus delivers people. So out of these two views, I wanted to be faithful with the text and say, man, let's wrestle with this together. The question is, which is correct? Y'all, I don't know. But here's, if I had to lean one certain way, it would have to be uh, the angel view because of the consistent use of, of sons of God and how 1 Peter chapter 3 interprets some things. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 3. 
because I think for me this is what sealed the deal. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, y'all. So like, time out right here, y'all. For Christ also suffered once, once for sins. That we are not under an Old Testament era of, of many sacrifices. No, Jesus came and I had one sacrifice that is perfecting for all time those who are being sanctified according to Hebrews chapter 10. By his death, we experience life. And so <clears throat> suffering brings about glory. So if you're coming in suffering, salvation has come. Jesus was forsaken so we, that we could be forgiven. He was cast out so that we could be brought close. So I, I don't know what you're going through or what you have been through, but y'all glory in a Jeep, a Jeep, hello, a deep joy, not Jeep, not talking about Jesus, a deep joy, a deep joy awaits. That's first, first Peter chapter three, the righteous for the unrighteous, that God, there, there's hope in his image. Jesus came to restore that hope. But let's continue on, sons of God talk. Here we are, verse 19, in which he went. This is Jesus. He went and he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. He, he, he goes to these spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. Jesus rose from the dead, apparently according to 1 Peter 3, goes down to the depths and gets his preach on, y'all. He preaches at them. It says, y'all are a defeated foe, yo. You're done. You've been, the enemy has been destroyed. You have no power here. I've conquered the grave. And who are these spirits? Verse 20, because they formerly did not obey. When? When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So you see the connection here. The spirits in prison who formerly did not obey in the days of Noah. So what other spirits would, for, uh, would Peter be talking about if it wasn't Genesis chapter, chapter 6? Or you can even go to Jude 6, or you can go to 2 Peter 2, where it talks about these, this fall, these fallen angels in the days of Noah, which is, which is significant for this original audience. So let's place ourselves there in Israel. They're on their way to the promised land. They've just been delivered from Pharaoh, just been delivered from the bondage of Egypt. And Moses is stirring up in their memory, with all this talk of sons of God, he's stirring up in their memory that when kings and people oppose God's rule, in attempt to corrupt his design, they, they face judgment. And so this, this is, I know we're getting to the details of these things, but for the, for the Israelites going into the promised land, this was for them to remember that God's faithfulness and the redemption that they experienced and the judgment that God unleashed. He's calling them to remember. And the whole point is that the enemy is at work attempting to derail God's promise while at the same time humanity wants to act beyond their limits. Let's keep reading verse 5. The text says this. The Lord saw. Uh-oh. Here we go. The sons of God saw. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was uh, only on evil continually. If you have a pen or maybe a, a, a pencil, maybe we'd write next to that phrase, total depravity. Totally and inherently depraved. Every thought, every intention of his heart was on was on evil and we hear in our culture follow your heart the bible would maybe speak differently of that <laughs> that according to jeremiah 17 the heart is jeremiah 17 9 the heart is deceitful and beyond all cure that we need a redeeming work we need a healing work within our heart 
Verse 6 says, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. The wickedness of man's heart grieved the heart of our Father. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man, animals, and creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Do you see the Creator's heart breaking? And do we share His breaking over our sin and our world's sin? Or do we justify it? Or do we tolerate it? No, the Lord saw. The Lord grieved. The Lord said. The Lord confronts evil. And then God's heart would break to the point that He would send His Son to be broken for us so that we could be made whole. Jesus broke out of that tomb for hope to break into our hearts. Y'all, it's a mess in Genesis 6. It's a mess. It's a lot going on. A lot of wickedness, a lot of evil, a lot of hopelessness. And then look with me in verse 8. And all the mess. But, but Noah, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord because God is preserving a people and he remains true to his promise. Who is this Noah that the word talks about? Go back with me to Genesis chapter 5. The text says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. A couple weeks ago, we heard a sermon in Genesis 1 about the image of God that Josue preached on. And here again, even after the fall, we have hope that the image of God, is, it exists and it's, and it's in us. We are still created in the image of God. We have worth and we have, we have value, and we should be treated as such. When I think about the image of God, when I think about being created in his likeness, I like to think of a diamond. I've not bought many diamonds in my life, but I do have one experience where I did purchase a diamond, and that's when I was getting married. And do you all remember the pressure of finding that engagement ring? Y'all look at me like, no, it was not a problem at all. Yeah, it was, we went to the ring, got the, got the ring, and, and we were, it was a done deal. Y'all, I stressed out about it so much because there's so many options apparently there's different size rings that that it looks good on a lady's hand apparently i picked out a big old fat ring that wouldn't look good on my wife's hand she's like yeah i'm so glad you didn't didn't pick out that one yeah yeah me too and so her best friend came along with me as we were looking for uh, her engagement ring which praise god that she was there to help me pick out this engagement ring and so we go to this place and we're learning all about how diamonds are cut and fashioned and and you got to get this certain one because you really want you really want to wow her it's like all this pressure on a ring. I'm spending a lot of money on this ring. So much so that I had to sell my T100 truck to get that ring. Because I love her and she's worth it, y'all. Come on. Absolutely. <laughs> totally worth it. Still got that ring. When I look at that, I'm like, man, I really like that T100. Oh, that old 96, man. Missing that truck. Y'all like, are you kidding me, a T100? Yeah, then I moved up to the, to the Tundra. Anyway, so I just look at that ring and I, I just remember the cost that it took. And, and man, it's totally worth it. The reason why I bring this up is when you look at a ring and you look at underneath uh, certain lights, man, there's a sparkle that happens because there's a cut and there's a fashioning that happens in that ring that, that reflects light that doesn't have this light on its own. It must rely on a, a source outside of itself to, re- to reflect light. That's the image of God is that we're created in his image. Jesus is known in John chapter 8 that he is the light of the world. John 1, the light shines in the darkness, and darkness cannot overcome it. And so when, we, when this, this, this light hits us, Jesus hits our heart, I mean, we're able to reflect him in ways that we never could have reflected him before. This light, this reflection, we're created to reflect who God is. 
and not reflect our own image. Y'all, we're obsessed with image. Biblically, we see in the word that people were commanded to not make graven images. Yet we grow impatient, so we take hold and mold our own God like Aaron did with the golden calf, or like King Saul in 1 Samuel 15. Brother gets so full of himself that he makes a monument. Big old, big old statue of himself when the people are coming in. They would see, man, Saul, man, he is great. We've been struggling with image for a bit. And if you're, if you're wondering, man, where are the monuments of our day? Look no further than your social media platform. There you'll see the lust to be right and the lust to be noticed. Everything is golden. Everything is cute. And everything is, is neat. It wasn't too long ago, my wife and I went on a photo shoot. My second was born. We thought, well, we probably should capture some pictures of uh, our, both of our kids, not just the one. So let's go take some pictures. And we decided to go to this wooded area. Because, man, that'd be cool. Get some trees in the background. Have some nature. Have, some, have a more natural look. And so we go to get, take these pictures. And I got my, my brand new Vans on. Got the white on there. And there's mud everywhere. Just muddy as all get out. We go, and I got my two little kids who are like, you want to stop and take a picture? They ain't going to go down for that. So they're fighting. I, me, myself, I'm, I've had to die a lot to myself to go even go get, take some pictures. You know what I'm saying? I'm holding my breath. Kids are fighting. And, 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 and at some point, my daughter was eating a stick. We didn't capture that moment, though, by the way. <laughs> or eating leaves. That was a parenting win. She's okay. She's alive. She's good. Probably the one you heard screaming in the back. That was my child. Her vocals are still good. So yeah, we, and, But if you look at the pictures, they're good, y'all. Those, those pictures, they, they look good. But leading up to that moment and all the things that were going down, like there was so much chaos. But yet it's that image that we portray. And that's the image that we project. In a world that promises instant connection and beauty, we've never felt more alone because we sit in our homes and compare ourselves to other images. And when comparison sets in the heart, it produces jealousy. And it robs us of the joy of beholding Jesus, the better image. And we no, no, we no longer love others, but we scroll right past them. Church, what image are you projecting and living for? Does it promote Jesus or does it promote yourself? 2 Corinthians chapter 12 would say, verse 8, three times, this is Paul, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. He's pleading with the Lord. The text would say there's a thorn in his flesh. He's pleading for the Lord to take away, and God responds. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am made strong. Are we content in our weaknesses? Do we boast about our weaknesses so that Christ's power may be perfected in us? And so that we can actually point people to the Savior rather than thinking that we're the Savior. No, we boast about our weaknesses. We hope in, in God's image. We hope in his image. It's even Jesus himself. I was talking to my wife yesterday, and she had some great wisdom she was sharing with me, some podcasts that she was listening to. And she said, it's interesting that even after Jesus rose from the dead, he still had scars. He still had wounds. And when he approaches the critic and he approaches the skeptic, it's those scars that led to belief. 
church, would we not be about so hiding our weaknesses and our deficiencies and cling to Jesus who is the efficient one, who is our strength, who is our Savior, who does redeem us, who does forgive us, who sets us right, delights in us. All these things. Because when we boast about our weaknesses, it makes Jesus look all the more great. Especially in our parenting, which is our second point. Hope. Hope in God's image. Number two, hope for the family. Verse three, when Adam had lived 130 years. Okay, 130 years. That's a long time. This is pre-flood people, by the way. Pre-flood. They're living hundreds and hundreds of years, okay? He fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. Interesting. Genesis 5 starts out talking about how, how God created in his image, and then there's this switch of, of, of Adam fathering in his own likeness after his image. We are created in God's image, but there's also an image that we pass down as well. What church, what image, or what are we passing down to our kids? And what are we discipling them in and towards? Because that's what Genesis 5 is, is talking about. Is he's passing down this image and a lot of death. There's a lot of like, uh, people living and the number of years, and then, then they die. This person, a lot of years, this is what they did, and then they died. It's like, okay, we get the point. And then, like, this is a part of the curse. This is part of the fall. But I'll go back to that question, parents or grandparents. What are we passing down to our kids? What are we discipling our kids in? Is it convenience? Is it comfort? Is it, are we discipling them in performance? Do we only tell them that we love them when they do things well? When they have a list of accomplishments, do we only give them that attention that they need? Are we discipling them in pretending? Are we talking about things? Or are we just sweeping things underneath the rug to be left for another day? Are we discipling them in anger and impatience? What are we discipling our kids to? It's not if we are discipling, it's what or who are we discipling them in. And when we fail, because we will, <laughs> and when we fail, I pray for myself and for our families that we would disciple our kids towards Jesus by modeling out humility and repentance and living weak so Christ's power may be perfected in us. That we will mess up with our kids, hopefully a little less than our parents did, and maybe without intention, but when we do, it's an opportunity for the gospel to take root. Parenting with grace, knowing we're not the Savior, invites our kids to actually see the Savior. Second Corinthians chapter 3 would say, now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, and all God's people said, amen. amen. I feel like every time I read that verse, like, I gotta say amen. Now where the spirit of the Lord is, there is, there is freedom. There's freedom, y'all, where the spirit of the Lord is. So if we're not experiencing freedom, maybe the, 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 the spirit is absent, where there's bondage. But no, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And when our unrealistic expectations are not met, or our dreams are not fulfilled in our Kids, we will, we will parent out of frustration rather than the freedom that is in the Spirit. It's not about competition with our kids. It's about compassion that moves toward our kids so Christ be formed in them and not be formed into our own image. And, and not, our, not our image, but, but Jesus' image. In verse 18, we continue on and say, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed to the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is, who is the Spirit. But don't miss the we all. I know we're talking about parents. I know there may be some grandparents in here or maybe may some empty nesters or our kids are now out of the house. Like I, this is a we all endeavor. 
This isn't just like a single family unit. No, like we need the church. We need this tribe. We need people speaking into our lives. We need community. We need, we need help. It's the we all. It's in this endeavor of beholding God that we're changed from one degree of glory to another. One degree. When I think about one degree, I think about a lock and just that, like that's just a little notch right there. If you miss that in a little notch, you missed a whole lock. Can't open that thing up. Not that I have experience with that in my junior high days. But I think about, when I think about one degree, I think about, man, just a notch at a time. A notch at a time. That it's a process, y'all. It's a, it's a crawl. It's a walk. And we're not the Holy Spirit. It's the Lord that has to bring about the change with our kids. Our responsibility is to throw seeds of the gospel, to sow, to sow the word, to throw it out there in hopes that that, that, that seed's going to land in their heart and the Holy Spirit's going to rain down on them with his goodness, so much so that, that, they, that they can't respond to want to follow Jesus and to love Jesus. And we can't do that, y'all. That's out of our control. But God, our God is sovereign. Hope has broken in. Church, what spiritual legacy do you want to pass down to the next generation? What spiritual legacy do you want to pass down to the next generation? Look with me in Genesis chapter 5. We're going back to verse, we'll skip down to verse 21. The word says, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he's 65, he became the father of Methuselah. I don't know how many 65-year-olds there are in here, but he ain't done with you. Ain't done with you. You're like, with kids? I deny that. <laughs> wasn't done with Enoch. Yeah, wasn't done with Enoch. He fathered, had a, a son named Methuselah. If you're looking for a name, by the way, I've never heard any Methuselahs. And he lived the longest in the list. So there you go, Methuselah. But look at this key word, y'all. I was reading this, and look at verse 22. There's this word, after. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. Verse 22, after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God, 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. And Enoch, again, walked faithfully with God, and then he was no more because God took him away. And just two just brief things on Enoch. Did y'all catch the after? If you do the math, he, he fathers at 65, he starts walking faithfully, and he lives for a total of 365. I read that as it's when Methuselah came into the picture is when Enoch started walking faithful. Now, parents, let that sink in a little bit, because sometimes we can look at our kids like they're burdens, and sometimes they have some work. I know. I mean, even just getting here in the morning, like, I know they, they, they're, there's some work to be done. If you're a child in the house, you're like, how dare you? How dare you talk like that? Like that? It's because we love you, and in the same way, we're still in process. The Father's still fathering us. We're still, gro we're still growing together, but rather maybe look at them as burdens. We truly would look to them as blessings that drive us to dependence on the Father? What if our families are being used as God's kindness to bring about a deeper trust in faithfulness? It's Methuselah, y'all. We know it's Enoch walking with God. What's the tool in which God used to bring that about? His son. That's the first thing. Second thing, out of all the ten families mentioned here, it's Enoch who walked faithfully with God, and then he was not. God just took him out wasn't worthy of the world, and God said, oh, we're done with him. Hebrews 12 would say, or sorry, 11 verse 5 would say, by faith, Enoch was taken from this life, and so that he did not experience death. He could not be found, because God had taken him away. Can you imagine if you're Enoch's family, looking for Enoch? Enoch, hey man, where are you at? You're going through all the adventures, like all the adventures to go find dad. 
You don't see a movie like that, and then they don't find dad. All right, this is the real life that's happened. He lived a life that was so faithful that God literally took, took him out for 300 years. And it's that phrase, he walked. He walked with God. He didn't sprint. He didn't, he didn't go beyond his limits. He simply put one foot in front of the other, step by step, as Galatians 5 would stay, say. It was a walk in a healthy pace. With all the parenting that goes on in my house, there's times where I, we just need to get outside and take a walk. You know what I'm saying? My neighbor the other day goes, man, yeah, you cottons, y'all, y'all walk around a lot. <laughs> yeah, we do. She's like, that's really good for your physical health. And I was like, it's really good for my mental health too. Because my mind is shot, y'all. I don't know where my mind is at. I, I, it's like my kids hit it somewhere, and it's somewhere out here outside, and I'm walking around looking for it. Because there's a, there's, a, there's a sanity, there's a, there's a, when there's a step and there's a pace and there's a healthy rhythm, when I walk with my wife and we connect with one another, we're talking to one another, and, and we're sharing with one another about what's really going on in life, there's a, there's a certain pace and connection that brings intimacy. A healthy, healthy pace. It said of Noah that he walked with God. It even said in Genesis chapter 3, you remember the father? He was walking in the cool of the day. Galatians 5.16, so I say walk by the Spirit, because it's in the walking church, in this understanding pace, is where we can behold God's faith. In this understanding pace, we behold God's face. And at times we can project this image of a false self that is efficient, farther along, having it all together, doing a lot of good, and then we beat ourselves up over unrealistic expectations we're putting on ourselves that God isn't even expecting out of us. And if you're like me, you sometimes think that you're unlimited and you can do all the things. No need for boundaries. Come on, boundaries for other people. I don't need no boundaries. Y'all, that's false. That's a lie of the enemy from the very beginning in chapter 3. They wanted to be unlimited. They wanted to be God, so they reached and took hold of, of what they shouldn't. Walking with God was not enough for them. Is it enough for us? My question for us in this is, is it possible that the gnawing anxiety we experience is a result of not embracing our limits, attempting to run ahead of God and not content walking with him. God invites us to walk with him with an understanding pace where we can behold his face. And we may take a step back and look at our lives and say, man, what is the pace of my life? Is it a healthy pace? Is it an an unhealthy pace? Because I would invite us to say, what is driving that pace? Why is there this restlessness inside myself? Why do I find myself thinking about how, how, how much more I need to do when I'm not resting what Christ has already done? What is this gnawing anxiety that we experience when we tune into that? Because there's a big possibility that there's, a, there's some voices of the past that are influencing our pace. Maybe from our parents or our grandparents or our coaches or people of influence that have been in our lives that, that are still there. And I've had conversations with people, I've had conversations with some of, some of even you, encouraging us to go back to that past, to go back to, to that place and that, and that space where Jesus' voice can heal. And his voice can be the voice in which we live, we live in and not the voice of whatever influence, whatever voices of, of rejection, whatever voices of not having the attention, whatever, whatever that may be, because church, the past, it illuminates the present, according to Peter Cesario in his book, Emotional Healthy Spirituality. It's the past that illuminates the present. And if we don't own the past or what's happened in the past, the past will own us. 
But y'all, Jesus has come. He doesn't left us without hope. He preserves a people. He delivers them from this evil in the world. That's why Colossians 1 says that he is the image of the invisible God. The image. And he delivers us out of bondage into his kingdom of his son in whom he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of, of sins. And y'all, we don't have time to talk about this, but we're going to get to a character in Genesis chapter 16. That character being Hagar, who was abused, who was mistreated, and who's on the run. Literally, her name means flight. She's fleeing. And in Genesis chapter 16, the angel of the Lord, it pursues Hagar in that flight, in that fleeing. And he asked the question, don't miss it, y'all. He asked her the question, where are you from and where are you going? For some of us, like, no, nah, Aaron, I don't want to go back to the past. Gonna, I, I, I can't think, even go think in that direction. But the Lord invites us with the same question. Where are you from? What voices are seeking to put worth on you? And where are you going? Because if we don't reflect on where we've been, it's going to affect us on where we go. And it's in that moment in Genesis chapter 16 when the Lord meets them at the well in the wilderness. She cries out and says, you are the God who sees. You're the God who sees and I see you. There's this beautiful exchange of, of look and of wonder. And she busts out and says, man, you're the God who sees. Church, he sees you. He notices you. Is this enough for us or will we look for notice elsewhere? Is this look enough? It's hope in God's image. There's hope for the family. And y'all, there's hope for the weary. There's hope for the weary. In Genesis 5, 28, Lamech lived 128 years. He fathered a son and called his name Noah. And he's saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Do you hear the, the cry of a father prostrating himself amongst the curse, amongst the toil, and says, I'm going to name my son Noah because we need relief. We need rest. Genesis 3.15 promised a rest. It, prom it promised one who would conquer the enemy I want that to come now. I want that to be in my family. I'm going to name my son Noah because he is going to give us rest. There's this expectation for God to intervene. Parents, are we desperate? Are we desperate to call upon the Lord for true relief and not seek for relief elsewhere from this world? Will we look to, the, to Jesus who is our relief? And in the passage, there's this, there's this like anticipation, is Noah the one? Is he the promised one? Is he the promised Messiah to come to make things right? I mean, it says in Genesis 6 that Noah was a righteous man, that he was blameless, and he walked with God. I mean, Noah trusted God enough to build an ark in the midst of opposition. You know people thought he was crazy. You know he got made fun of. He was on this ark with his family and all those animals for 40 days plus some. Think about that, y'all. Not just your family, which already feels like a zoo, you got animals in the ark. It's literally a zoo times two for all those days. What does Noah do when he gets off that ark? He makes a sacrifice, a, ple a pleasing aroma. Our kids are really excited right now in this moment. They're really excited about the pleasing sacrifice, or they're wanting me to be done, which I'm getting there. I'm, Noah provides this rest for that moment. But then you know what? Genesis 9.20 says, Noah became a man of the soil. His father's longing for that soil and that ground, for that curse to be lifted. Noah became a man of the soil. He planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and became drunk, and he laid uncovered in his tent. If you're reading this for the first time, as an Israelite, you're hearing this story, 
That's a devastating blow. That your hope has been placed in a man, Noah, to bring relief, and then he doesn't bring it. The ground in which he owned now owned him. So the people continued to wait and wait. And they waited for relief, relief, they waited for years. And there's this guy from Galilee, from Nazareth. What good comes from Nazareth? Matthew 11 busts out with this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus paints this picture of, a, of plowing fields, of, of being yoked up together. He says, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, be synced up with me. Notice in the text, he doesn't take us out of the field. He doesn't take away the pain, but promises to be with us in it. To give us strength in the midst of parenting, to give us strength in the midst of work and toil, which we still have, and it will give us, he will give us rest. Church, the restless heart can only find its rest when it's tethered to the rule and reign of King Jesus, this gentle and lowly shepherd, King Shepherd, that provides us rest. So this invitation is to all. I close with this, and I'll ask the band to come up. I close with this invitation, the same invitation that Jesus presented to all of us. Come to me, who all, not just some, but all who are heavy laden and burdened with schoolwork, with GPAs, with seeking accomplishments or performance or looking at our bank account. And all this, these pursuits in the midst of death, in the midst of loss, in the midst of grieving, for those longing to find their rest, come to me, come to Jesus. Whether this is your first time in church or this is your 100th time in church, this is where we find our rest. This is where we find our relief. And it was said of the, of the disciples when they were called out of that boat, to put down their nets and to follow Jesus. Church, what nets or false comforts are we clinging on to that's got the best of our hearts where we're not able to see Jesus? Would you lay those down this morning? Would you lay down those false comforts? Would you lay down that false rest and find rest in the arms and the embrace of our gentle and lowly shepherd who gets yoked up with us, resides in us, and provides us strength outside of ourselves when we live weak? When we live weak. Hope in God's image. Hope, hope, for, hope for the family. God, God, we're grateful. Lord Jesus, let's, let's pray together. Jesus, you are our only hope. You provide hope in your image. God, you provide hope for God, our, our family. There's a hope beyond this world. And there's even a hope for the weary. So if we're feeling weary or heavy laden and we're longing for relief, the better Noah has come. The empty tomb is empty, and the rest is history. The old is gone, and newness is here. Shame has been rolled away, and hope, it's been rolled in. Jesus, you are our only available hope that goes beyond this world. You're preserving a people. You preserved us here in this room. You brought us in. We don't have to be in bondage to the past. We don't have to be in bondage to those voices, but we get to operate and live out of a different voice. A whole brand new land and waters of freedom. God, I pray that we'd let down our nets, lay, lay down shallow comforts, 
and rest in our true comfort, which is you. We need your help in this. Would you help us? In your name I pray.